0: and bring honor and glory to the name of Christ. Here now is our pastor-teacher, Harry Reader.
1: Turn in your copies of God's Word to a number of texts of scriptures as we continue our series that has kind of evolved uh, and um, into these matters of looking at the related relish- issues that began with, If I should die before I awake... And that was the anticipation of a new heavens and a new earth inaugurated by the judgment that would be inaugurated by the second coming of Christ. So last week I went through the various texts to give us understanding of the second coming of Christ. Read the text and then also uh, then did a distillation to give you a broad, comprehensive understanding of Christ's second coming. When and how. Well, I propose to do the same thing about the judgment, the final judgment day and the judgment seat uh, tonight. And therefore, I'm going to take you to a number of passages of Scripture, uh, except for the final one, which I will wait to read at the conclusion and then uh, give us a distillation from it. May I say something here? I, I have to confess to you. I'm sure part of it is the personality and The way God has nurtured and natured me um, is that I love the cadence of the Christian life. I love the cadence of the seasons, the Advent and Holy Week, the opportunities they present for celebration and outreach. And I want to thank Max for challenging us and encouraging us as to those that we might bring to hear uh, the gospel that might not come on other Lord's days, but might uh, come. That's one of the reasons that we're having five, as we realize not only our people are returning uh, out of this present distress, but we also realize family and friends may be with you, with you. And that also this is a great opportunity to invite people. Uh, secondly, uh, but, sec- but not only uh, the cadence of the seasons, but the cadence of a week Uh Serving the Lord six days, doing work heartily unto the Lord in the responsibilities and roles of life, seeking to be a Christian steward, to be found faithful, and then to be found faithful on the Lord's day. And I love the cadence of the Lord's day, the morning and evening sacrifices of praise. And I fully realize, folks, I'm well aware that uh, we're a little bit as a Neanderthal at uh, Briarwood because we have Sunday evening worship services. But that's not out of innovation, or is it simply out of a nodding our head to tradition? Uh, the Sabbath Psalms call for the morning and evening sacrifices of praise. Uh, the, the pattern that we have seen not only in the scripture, but church history. In fact, I always remind people, the first to, two Lord's Day worship services were on Sunday night. Uh, that was when Jesus gathered them in the upper room on the day of his resurrection, and then one week later... Of course, Thomas was not there on that first Sunday night. He stayed home and watched uh, the end of the football game, and so doubting Thomas was not available. But uh, the Lord was gracious and met with them the next Sunday night. So, I, I love the uh, I love that rhythm. But I also want you to know that practically, it's very helpful for me as a pastor. I love for us Lord's Day morning worship because I know you've been out there serving Jesus to be able to pull up on this campus that God's granted us, even since the serenity from the beating up that the world can give you, but also being drawn together to be encouraged to lift up praise to God. And that's why so much of our singing and confessions focus on the transcendence. I believe you need a big God to live in this world. And so that's why we do that on the Lord's Day morning, like this morning. Worship the King. What a glorious hymn to lift our souls with those great truths of the transcendence and majesty of God. But we also love on Sunday evenings to do uh, the eminence of God. You, just what you were hearing with the psalms and the hymns and the spiritual songs we just sang tonight. As that encourages us, it soothes us, it equips us, it exhorts us that God is with us. He is not only over all, but he is in all and through all. And, um, but I also go a step further. I love Sunday evenings because they provide for us special opportunities for outreach. You're fully aware of those that we use from time to time on Sunday night, that if you are sharing the gospel with people personally, then we can have on a Sunday night an event that will draw people in to hear the gospel corporately that you can follow up with individually as well. And then but another thing is for me Sunday night As I love expository preaching primarily on Sunday morning. And then I love to do topical expository preaching, grabbing a the theme and going to the text that define that theme. I enjoy doing that on Sunday night because that gives me a way to even Pull another trigger in your discipleship. Now, it gets a little frustrating because would you like to know how many times I get an email or I get a um, a phone call or I get a uh, just a, a contact and pastor, what about? And I had just preached on it the two Sunday nights before. And uh, so um, and, the, you know. <laughs> I wanted to say, well, if you would have been there, you would have already heard. But I'll give you your own private distribution of that sermon uh, on the email, which is never the same. Uh, So that's why we take on some of these issues and then go to the text of Scripture that flesh them out. That's what I would do if I could put you all in a small group. Uh, I would pick those themes that I know will build your life and then we'll do it. So this is my opportunity to do it. And now we've added a little bit of a small group flavor in that we have these uh, conversations about every seven or eight weeks where you can send questions on what has been preached. And then um, Bruce and I will have those conversations for the second half of a Sunday evening Gathering as well. So I just wanted to give you that and ask you if you could be an emissary for that to encourage the Lord's people. We're not exactly full to overflowing tonight. There is room even with social distancing for more tonight. And uh, so that uh, people could take advantage of that for their walk with the Lord. And uh, to do so uh, not, by, um, not by imposing anything upon their consciences beyond what the scriptures would have us say, but by inviting them to that which could help them grow in the Lord and the importance of it, particularly in light of the privilege of Lord's Day worship. Well, having said that, we now come to this focus in the what about the judgment seat itself. And I'm going to ask you to take your Bibles, have them ready, uh, kind of like a youth group sword drill here. I want you to be ready, and I'm going to walk you through a number of passages of Scripture. Would you go first of all with me in dealing with this? This is not exhaustive. I have uh, consciously picked out some selected Chapters that give us uh, the information we need for a comprehensive and not exhaustive, but a comprehensive um, doctrine of the final judgment and uh, the judgment day and the judgment seat and the judgment throne so that we can put together some basics that you can put into your life and, and discipling you. So if you'll go with me to uh, chapter 25, uh, Jesus gives a conclusion to his. Uh, who, to his sermon. Uh, that we studied last week about the second coming. Now, there's no accident that you've got the second coming in Matthew 24, and then in Matthew 25, he moves to the judgment seat, which is inaugurated by the second coming of Christ. And this is what he says in chapter 25 and verse 31. And when the Son of Man comes, that's what we studied last week, when he comes, when will he come? Well, you learned he will not come to the gospel is preached to all the nations and all of the elect have been Brought to himself. Until then, he will patiently empower his church to fulfill the great commission and lead the great commandment. So here he says, When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will, he who? Jesus, will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations. He will separate people. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. The righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison or visit you? And the king will say answer them. Truly, I say to you, as you did it to the one of the least of these, my brothers, In other words, when you do that to those who are mine, then you have done it to me. You can hear the echo to Saul, can't you? Saul, why persecutest thou me? Jesus is fully identified with his people, and what you do to his people you have done unto him. And one of the evidences, not the ground of your going into heaven, but one of the evidences of those who are in Christ and Christ is in them, are these these marks of God's grace, the footprints of God's grace that will be exposed at the judgment seat. But then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. In other words, there will be plenty of evidence to convict them of their sin of unbelief. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. I am naked, and you did not clothe me, sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they will also will answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them, saying, Truly, I say to you, as you did not do it to the least of these my brothers... You did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment from that judgment seat. The others will go away into eternal life. Now, if you would go with me, uh, go with me to uh, Luke chapter 12, Luke chapter 12. Just make your way to your right (coughs) into the gospel of Luke and slip over. To the twelfth chapter here, another parable dealing with the matter of the judgment seat has been given to us here. He tells us uh, in chapter um, in uh, Luke chapter 12, he informs us of those things that uh, stand before us, that we are to be ready to meet the Lord. And uh, here, here, and you'll find this in verse thirty five, stand dressed for action and keep your lamps burning. See, we're at the second coming again. The judgment seat is always on the heels of the second coming. Keep your lamps burning and be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants from the master f- But Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table, and he will come and serve them. If he comes in the second watcher, in the third, and finds them awake, blessed are those servants. But know this, that if the master of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have left his house to be broken into. You also must be ready. Why? For the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. You don't know the hour, you don't know the day, so you don't need to speculate on it. But you do need to be ready at any hour and at any day. Now Peter said to him, Lord, are you telling this parable for us or for all? And the Lord said, who then is faithful and wise manager, whom his master will set over his household to give them their portion of food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will set him over all of his possessions. That's why we've been covering the theme of lifestyle stewardship, found faithful when Jesus comes. But if that servant says to him and and notice where the anticipation in the new heavens and the new earth that your faithful stewardship will be rewarded, it will be rewarded appropriately and and, uh, and rightly. But that's not all that he says about the judgment seat. Not only is it a place where the stewardship of believers is affirmed with rewards, but notice what else he says. Truly, I say to you, he will send him over all his... All his doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that servant says to himself, my master is delayed in coming and begins to beat the male and female servants and to eat and drink and get drunk. The master of that servant will come on the day when he does not expect him. And at an hour he does not know and will cut him in pieces and put him with the unfaithful. So here. The, the one who doesn't exercise stewardship, that's the evidence that they don't have a saving relationship with the master when he comes. They are numbered with the unfaithful. And what happens? And that servant who knew his master's will but did not get ready or act according to his will will receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know and did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating. Everyone to whom much was given of him, much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. So now we see not only are there rewards from the judgment seat to the faithful in their stewardship, but the exposure of the unbeliever will also carry the responsibility for the degrees of the eternal torments of hell. One receive a beating commiserate to, or the punishment commiserate to, the um, their rebellion against what they knew. You're not, but you are held accountable for what you know and what you do, and what you don't, not for what you don't know. Now that's why you also, you also ought to traffic back to this morning's sermon. No one stands before the judgment seat without knowing God, His invisible attributes, His eternal power and divine nature. But some know more than others. They don't fall into, they don't fall into the hands of God at the judgment seat under the witness of general revelation. They fall into the hands of the living God having heard the witness of special revelation under the shadow of faithful pulpits. They have a greater responsibility, according to this text. And therefore, if they don't know Christ, then they have even greater judgment of torments. And just like all of the joys of heaven are perfect for all, for all eternity, yet the rewards exist to give us instruments to praise him with, so the degrees of punishment affirm the degrees of culpability In hell itself, although hell is of actual torment uh, and unendurable for all, for all eternity. So if you would, I want you to go with me to another text. Go with me to Philippians chapter two, Philippians chapter two. So these texts and we're going to do a little bit of a distillation with these brief comments as we work our way through it. What a wonderful passage of Scripture, Philippians. It seems as if God in his providence had brought us to this epistle on numerous occasions this year. Look with me in Philippians chapter 2 and go with me to verse 9. Therefore, God has highly exalted Christ and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess, interestingly, we just sung a a song concerning this. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Well, clearly, in this day and time, not every tongue is confessing. In this day and time, not every knee is bowing. But there is coming a time when either in judgment or affirmation of salvation, every knee will bow. And every tongue confess to the glory of God, the Father, Jesus Christ as Lord. That's obviously the anticipation of the judgment day. Now, if you would go with me, um, go with me to Revelation chapter 20, Revelation chapter 20. Now, we're going to be back here uh, in a. Another week or so, uh, looking at the loosening for a season and then the final defeat of Satan. But I want you to look with me here in um, in chapter 20, down to verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it from his presence, earth and sky fled away. You can hear the echoes of Peter, that the earth and the sky, the heavens and the earth are rolled up. And a new heavens and a new earth will be rolled out. And no place was found for them. That is the old order of the heavens and the earth under the curse of sin. And I saw the great. I mean, I saw the dead. The great and the small. In other words, everyone. Standing before the throne. And books, underline that, were opened. These are the judgment books. But then another book. So there are books and then they're separate from the books is a book. The book, another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged by what was written in the first set, the books. According to what they had done, they don't stand in Christ. They stand on their own merits and therefore their record of of sin in thought, word, and deed is displayed by what's written in the books. And then he says, And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. What? Recorded in the books. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. In other words, unless your name is in the book of life, it's a foregone verdict, guilty, and the judgment of eternal hell. Your only hope is your name is not there. Your name is in the Lamb's book, the book of life. At that day in the judgment. Well, I want you to keep your finger there at that passage because I'll be coming back to it in just a moment. But what I also want to do is take just a few moments to ask you to walk your way through some statements that I want to try to bring a distillation of these things that we've read, as well as call a couple of other things that I didn't take the time to read, but that you might be familiar with. Uh, The first thing that people we can answer is this. Well, Pastor. How many judgment seats are there? How many judgments are there? Now, the reason, uh, of course, the initial answer to this, and this is why last week's sermon preceded this week's sermon. You don't have a judgment until you've got what? A second coming. The second coming inaugurates the judgment seat. So then why the question how many judgments we have? Because we have a number of of systems of theology concerning eschatology that is the doctrine of the last things. These revolve around your view of the millennium. Are you premillennial? Are you uh, postmillennial? Are you amillennial? Or as one uh, preacher said, are you panmillennial? It'll just pan out and I'll wait and see how it works out. In other words, this Bible text that, uh, that tells us in the book of Revelation of a millennial a reign of Christ upon the earth for a thousand years. Is this reign of Christ extending to the earth from Christ? Is it that thousand years, a literal thousand years, or is it a symbolic term in the book of Revelation or a number that has symbolic meaning and not literal physical meeting, but literal symbolic meaning and that is and how should it be seen and how should it be understood now why is that important and we'll get to this I promise that's going to be one of our Sunday night sermons in this series yet to be done as well as a sermon on the two beasts and the false prophet the unholy trinity in the book of revelation and uh, so as we anticipate that and as we look to that um, I what I would just remind you of is that uh, the millennial view uh, impinges upon your view of the second coming. Now, if you're postmillennial or if you are a millennial, you have a view of the second coming. The postmillennial says Jesus is coming after a 1000 year reign um, of the success of the gospel as it moves throughout In other words, the Great Commission will lead to the domination of the Great Commandment throughout the world, a glorious millennial reign. Then Christ comes at the end of it, in which there will be a final rebellion of Satan to be put down. That's the post-millennial view. It It has variations, but that's the basic view. There's only one second coming. It's at the end of the millennium. And the millennium is inaugurated by the Great Commission and it issues forth by the predominance of the great commandment. You shall love the Lord with all your heart, soul and mind and your neighbor as yourself throughout the world because of redeeming grace and common grace. Therefore, a postmillennial would only have one judgment seat at the end of that millennium. Well, what about the amillennial? Well, it's the same thing. The amillennial position means that uh, we there it believes in a millennium, but the millennium is a symbolic term of a thousand years, and it is between the advent uh, that the ascension of Jesus and the second coming, and it's not a physical one thousand years, but a period of time of perfection with the ten times ten times ten, the number of perfection that is used, and the thousand years is considered that that growing reign of the kingdom of God throughout all. All of the earth through the proclamation of the gospel in the Great Commission and then Christ comes again and then the judgment seat and then the new heavens and the new earth it's a pretty straightforward view but then there is the premillennial now unfortunately for our for our little uh, weenie beanie minds the premillennial has two different kinds of Now, in the last uh, 200 years, there are now almost 200 years, 175 years, there are now two premillennial views. One is called historical or covenantal premillennialism. Some of my uh, best friends hold to that view, Dr. Schaefer, uh, Jim Boyce, Will Barker, and others who I highly uh, esteem, Dr. J. J. Oliver Buswell and uh, J. Barton Payne. And others, great theologians. Now, their view is in the historical premillennial view is that Jesus comes back and he sets up a 1000 year reign. And at the end of that 1000 year reign, Satan brings another rebellion in which Jesus then from the heavens comes again to put the final touch of the final judgment. Therefore, you have two judgments because you have two second comings. You have a second coming that sets up the 1000 years and then a second coming that sets up the new heavens and the new earth. Thus, you have a judgment that God brings when he comes to set up the millennium and then a judgment that God brings because of the rebellion at the end of that thousand years as he sets up the new heavens and the new earth. Well, then a a lawyer, my goodness, lawyers seem to always find a way to mess things up unless they are astute Christian lawyers that are members of Briarwood Presbyterian Church. Uh, And this lawyer was a man by the name of Darby who had a dream, and he brought another uh, view to the scripture called dispensationalism. In its original form, it was that God administers his Saving work through seven dispensations. In other words, the covenants that are building to give us an understanding of the covenant of grace are pulled out and said to be different ways that God saves. Now, uh, that um, dispensationalism has... um, morphed and been edited, and so it's not quite the same as it was under Darby, and popularized by a Bible scholar who wrote a study Bible. His name was C.I. Schofield, and the Schofield Bible popularized Darby's uh, uh, new uh, ideas of salvation, and, um, and then in that was this uh, final administration, this final administration of God's um, uh, of God's work of grace in that Jesus would come back, but it's not coming back all the way. He only comes back part way and raptures out the church. And uh, that's what I was dealing with last week that I don't Feel is the left-behind concept that the believers are raptured out and the unbelievers are left behind. If you'll go read the text in my development of it, it's actually the opposite in the text, that believers are taken away into... uh, I'm sorry, believers are left into the security of the Lord in the new heavens and the new earth, but the unbelievers are those who are taken away in the text of Matthew chapter 24. But But just merely going... Going back to what is being taught here is that there is a there is the coming of Jesus where he raptures out the church and then seven years, a seven year tribulation. Of course, the postmillennial and the amillennial would say, no, we are always in a tribulation that will get more and more intense, Jesus said in, in um, tape. He says that um, do not be fearful, do not be discouraged, do not fear, but your trust in me in the world. You have tribulation, but take courage. I have overcome the world in me. You have peace. So uh, what what is believed by them is that the tribulation continues with intensification alongside of the of the kingdom of God, intensifying and spreading throughout the world as the evil empire is constantly striking back. So there is the premillennial position that Jesus raptures out the church. This is not a public second coming. It's a secret second coming. And the people of the the people of God are raptured out and then God will go back and do another work, particularly in Israel. And there will be this uh, seven years of tribulation during that time. At the end of the tribulation, then Jesus comes back And so you've got Jesus coming in the um, halfway, rapturing out the church. Seven years later, Jesus coming again and setting up the millennium for a thousand years. And then the rebellion at the end, Jesus comes again. So in the premillennial, dispensational premillennial view, you've got two and a half second comings. Well, guess what? (laughs) Your view on the, the millennium affects how many second comings you think there are. How many second comings you think there are will affect how many judgments you think that there are. So if you are a covenantal premillennial, you have two second comings and you have two judgments. The one that sets up the thousand years and the one that sets up the new heavens and the new earth. If you are a non millennial, there's one second coming and one judgment. If you're a postmillennial, there's one second coming and one judgment. If you are a covenant if you are a dispensational premillennial, There are other issues to deal with, but one of them is you basically have two and a half second comings and you have three different judgments. Thus, you hear about the the judgment upon the world at the second coming of Christ and the rapture of the God's people. Then the judgment, the great white throne judgment that takes place and then the and the judgment of the nations that takes place. And so instead of seeing one judgment that is being accomplished in what's revealed in Scripture, there are. Three judgments because you've got three second comings. So that's hopefully, I understand that that's a lot of information for you to look at. But what I want you to see is this is like dominoes. You want to know how many judgments you think that there are? That relates to how many second comings do you think that there are? If you believe there's one, then there's one final judgment. If you believe that there are two, there's two final judgments. If you believe there are three second comings, then you've got three Final judgments, thus it's hard to call any of them a final judgment since there are others to come. Well, um, I, um, it's, I think it's probably pretty obvious where I fall out on this, but uh, we, we will take another closer look at that, I promise, as we work through the text on the millenniums that are found in the book of Revelation later. My, what I would present to you is I think the weight of the evidence of Scripture is that there is one second coming. And there is one judgment in which all of God's work of judgment is going to be accomplished. What do we know next? What's the next thing that we want to distill from this? The next thing we want to distill is the fact that who is the judge? Well, on one hand, you can say this as a Christian. God is the judge and you're right. And you can say God is the judge by referring to God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Because all three persons of the Trinity are engaged. Now listen to this carefully. Whenever God does a work, creation, redemption, uh, whenever God does a work in creation, in redemption, in providence, whenever God does something, God does it as a Trinity. God created, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Father authored, the Son accomplished, the Spirit um, affirmed and ordered it. Redemption, God authors our salvation, the Son accomplishes it, and the Spirit applies it. In providence, the Father sends his loving care for us as his children, Jesus intercedes for us, and the Spirit of God intercedes for us with groanings too deep to be uttered. So whenever you talk about the judgment, it is God's judgment. God is upon the throne and all three persons of the Trinity are engaged. Yet what's abundantly clear in the scripture is that the father in light of Christ's incarnation and his victory as the Messiah appoints him. The lamb will sit upon the throne. It is the lamb that will bring the judgment decrees. And your only hope is that judge is also your redeemer and you're in the Lamb's book of life in that day. Who is going to sit upon the throne? It's abundantly clear in Matthew chapter 25. It's abundantly clear in Daniel. It's abundantly clear in Philippians 2. It's abundantly clear in, um, in the scriptures that the, the Lamb is on the throne as the judge. Now. It also needs to be affirmed, not only is the Trinity to be honored by all the works that God does, including the judgment, but the Bible also teaches us that the elect angels will be engaged at the at the judgment. They will be gathering up the great and the small. They will be part of the dividing into the left and the right, the sheep and the goats so the elect angels will be serving the Lord at the judgment. And that needs to be affirmed as well. Well, the question is now, who is going to be judged? We now know who is judging, who will be before the judgment seat. Well, the Bible teaches us in a number of texts um, a number of texts. I, I, I didn't read them. Do you don't mind? I'll give them to you. I want to be timely tonight. So um, uh, so I'm going to give you the text, Matthew 8:29, 29, uh, 2 Peter 2, 4 and Jude 6, that the judgment seat will also judge the fallen angels. The elect angels will be serving the Lord at the judgment. The fallen angels will be judged at the judgment. Jude affirms that. Peter affirms that in 2 Peter chapter 2 and verse 4. And, of course, you've already got it affirmed in the life of Jesus. Do you all remember when Jesus crosses the Sea of Galilee with his disciples and he goes to the land of the Gadarenes and he meets who? Demon possessed. You remember that? Hello. Y'all still awake? Good. Nod your head. Give me a Presbyterian Amen. Mm. Mm-hmm. Okay, good. So uh, you remember the you remember the, the, the demoniacs and do you remember when they came to Jesus? What? They called upon him. Why are you here? It is not our time yet. Time for what? They know what's coming. The judgment. They have already been cast down with the fallen angel. Now we call Satan the adversary, Apollyon. And they have been, it seems as if the Bible indicates this is one third of the angelic population. Jesus provides no atonement to save fallen angels. But they will all appear before the judgment seat. They know that day is coming. Peter affirms it, Jude affirms it, and you hear a demon, uh, these demons, the legion that speak out from the demoniac to Jesus. Our time has not come. But by the way, uh, and it says, and Jesus permitted them to leave and go into the swine, who are what? Unclean. And what do the swine do? I have stood at this place 15 times in my life. What do the swine do? They go over the cliff into the sea. Now, here's where you've got to do your work in the study of the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, God's grace is pictured as springs and rivers fallen humanity with its sin and rebellion is pictured as the sea. The sea was the door to the abyss, the intermediate state of torment. And what we're told is that many of these fallen angels are already in the abyss. And then these were sent into the abyss. When those swine went over with those demons that possessed them into the Sea of Galilee. That was a metaphorical, symbolic statement of their consignment under the judgment of God. The final judgment will be when Christ comes and the judgment seat is set up and the fallen angels will receive their um, their The divine judgment of God that sends them and Satan into the lake of fire in which will also be cast death and Hades, the abyss. Well, then we've got uh, so who else appeared before the judgment seat? All of humanity. Nobody misses it. Pastor, does that include the believer? Sure, it does. You're part of the great and small. The question, your hope is not to miss the judgment seat. Your hope is that the judge has already rendered the verdict for you because you're in the Lamb's book of life. That's what your hope is. Now, if you would, let me give you one more passage that I didn't read that I think would be important here. Take your Bibles and go with me. Keep your finger, please, at, at uh, Revelation uh, chapter 20, but go with me back to Second Corinthians Chapter 5. I actually meant to read this earlier. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, look down to verse 6. So, We are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith and not by sight. Yet we are of good courage and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat. Who is he speaking to? Believers. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. And there are going to be some verdicts for us, not of salvation, but verdicts of stewardship so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. What kind of stewardship have we practiced? We are accountable for the gifts that God has given us, the roles God has called us to fulfill, the relationships and the responsibilities that he has given to us. That's what God has called us. You see, you and I should never look at someone whom we think is more gifted with jealousy. The Bible says we are to be content. What are we supposed to do? You know, I really appreciate Dr. Robertson McQuilkin on this. One time I was listening to him and he said, as believers, do not look with pride upon the gifts God has given you. And arrogance. Do not look at the lack of them with dismay, or at others with more, out of envy. If God has given you—and I love His plain talk—if God has given you ten drums, then beat them for Jesus. If God has given you five drums, then beat them for Jesus. If God just gave you one drum, then be the best one drummer you can possibly be for Jesus. Be found faithful with the gifts that God has given you. And we will give an account for what God has entrusted to us. Our resources, our roles, our responsibilities, and our relationships. We'll go back with me to Revelation chapter 20. My next question, of course, one that I've already answered, so this one will be very brief. When will Jesus return? I mean, when will Jesus bring us before the judgment? After he comes again. And I think the biblical understanding is he's coming again. He's not coming again twice. He's not coming again uh, three times. He is coming again. And when he comes again, then will come the judgment and then will come the new heavens and the new earth. Well, so that's when he is coming again. And when he comes, uh, what is going to happen? This is my last comment tonight. What is going to happen because of the second coming and the judgment? Well, let me give you just a couple of things that are going to happen at the second coming of the judgment. Number one, the second at the judgment after the second coming of Christ. Number one is consummation. Now Jesus is Lord, but not yet has it appeared all of its majesty. Now I am perfect in Christ, but not yet have I been perfected. Now Christ reigns, but not yet has his reign been extended and all of his adversaries removed. Now Jesus has defeated all of his enemies, but not yet have they been destroyed. In other words, we live in the now of the assured victory of Christ, but the not yet of the consummation of that victory in us, upon us, through us and in the world to bring us to a new heavens and a new earth and the heavenly Jerusalem that will come down from heaven and God will be with his people, and his people will be with him. We will have the consummation. Secondly, the judgment will bring vindication. The Bible says to you that you are to always be ready to give an account of the hope that's within you. Do so with gentleness, sanctifying Christ as Lord in your hearts. And do so in a manner so that in that day, they, those under his judgment, will have to glorify God for what is displayed and affirmed about you in that day. Even though they may uh, they may do all that they can to discount you and discredit you in this day. And slander and gossip. You live before Christ, so in that day at the judgment, God's grace will be vindicated, God's people will be vindicated, and God's glory will be vindicated. Thirdly, conviction at the judgment. Those who now laugh and mock the sacred things of God in that day, not with godly repentance, but with worldly sorrow, will be brought to their knees And we'll have to confess Christ as Lord on that day. The conviction will be clear. Fourthly, the assignment will be made for eternity. The assignment of where? Either in the lake of fire, there's only two destinations. Either in the lake of fire, the eternal death, or in the new heavens and the new earth the eternal life. But also in the assignment will be the degrees of punishment in hell, though all undergo a perfect torment in hell. And the rewards that are given in heaven from the judgment seat. Why? Fifthly, am my fifth or sixth? Fifthly, I think it is. Fifthly, because... At the judgment seat, your judgment will not be about salvation. Your judgment will be about stewardship. That's why I'm preaching on lifestyle stewardship. You're going to give an account one day to the Lord. What did you do with his church? What did you do with the sacred covenant blessings that God has given in his church? The vows, the oaths, the sacraments, the pulpit ministry. The prayer life of God's people. You will give an account of what we've done with the Great Commission. You'll give an account of what we've done with the Great Commandment. You and I will give an account, not for salvation, but for the declaration of stewardship. And what is it, what verdict do we want to hear as we stand before him saved in the book of life? Saved because we're in the Lamb's book. But our stewardship is accounted for. And what we want to hear the Lamb say is what? Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. Notice, none of us will ever be profitable, <laughs> none of us are profitable stewards. We don't bring any profit. Anything we bring back to Jesus through Holy Spirit enabled obedience and ministry was all because of what Jesus enabled us to do. But we can be found faithful before the Lord. Pastor, what are the purposes of the rewards? Here's what I try to tell people. The purposes of the rewards at the judgment of believers, the judgment of stewardship so that we can receive uh, the due recompense for what we've done in the body and the rewards are given to us. And those who have invested the work God has given us in our life and we've invested it, our resources, our responsibilities, our roles, our relationships, then what do we get from that? We are we are then get we have an assignment in heaven. Whereby God honors that. And what will we do with that? We will worship and praise him. You see, what stewardship judgment does is it is a moment to give you your worship material for eternity. Just like God gave us some resources so we could bring before him His tithe and his offerings or we could bring before him the stewardship of praise today because of what God had entrusted to us. We didn't bring God anything that he didn't first give us. But when we faithfully give and serve the Lord with stewardship. Then God begins to bless it and he gives to those who give so that he presses it down that we who he gets to these things will get through us for him. And then when we get there, he gives even more to us that we will use for him just like we use what he gives us now for him. In that day, we will use that we will be stewards of our rewards to his praise and his glory. We're getting worship material. Let me try to illustrate it this way. Uh, this, is my, this, is my best, this is my best shot on rewards. I, go, I have a couple of restaurants that when I have the privilege to meet with people and share the gospel or do discipleship or counseling or whatever, and it's at a lunch, there's a couple of restaurants I like to go because, A, food's pretty good. B, service is pretty good. C, there's kind of a room and space to do some conversation without people listening in on you. Well, um, uh, I believe in tipping. (laughs) I share the, you know, of course I put myself up that I got to do pretty good on the tip because I share the gospel with them and I don't want to be chinchy on the tip after I've shared Jesus with them. You know, that preacher wanted me to get saved, but he doesn't want me to eat next week. So I want to be properly there. But I don't overdo it. I do it appropriately in terms of the service that's rendered as well. Now, that person is getting a salary. Why did they get a salary? Because I come there and buy a meal. That's why they got a job. They wouldn't have that job if I wasn't there buying a meal. Then out of appreciation for their faithfulness in the job that I gave them by purchasing the meal, I then give them a tip, a reward at that time. That's why I hate that phrase. Um... Gratuity required. It's not a gratuity if it's required. And it robs me of doing a gratuity. So what I want to do is I want to acknowledge that. Well, that's the way it's going to be at the judgment seat. We will not have done a single thing that we would have been able to do if God hadn't worked his, done his work of grace in us. Whatever we did, we didn't do anything with something that we came up with. We did what we did for him with what he gave us to do for him. Even the heart to do for him. So when he rewards us, that's his way to affirm our stewardship. And then what do we do with it in eternity? That'll be worship material. That's what that will be for all eternity. Well, let me give you a sixth thing. Is the sixth thing is that in that day, there will be, um, uh, the, well, let me just give you this final thing. In that day is a day of identification. It's a day of identification. Here's the sheep. Here are the goats. Here's his people, the elect, believers. Here are those who are not his people. Identification. One of the texts I didn't read is Jesus anticipating that day. He says this. Many, many will say to me on that day. Did we not do miracles? Did we not do many things in your name? And I will say on that day, depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. I never knew you. That day is going to be a day of identification and clarification. There are some you and I think are sheep. Because it's pretty easy to fool us. But on that day, it'll be exposed. They are not. Sometimes it gets exposed here. But sometimes it's then. But sometimes you get exposed here. But on that day, it will be clear. These are mine. He'll even amass the evidences. Here was the evidences of unbelief. Here was the evidences of belief. That's not what saved them. That was the evidence that affirms my verdict and confirms my glory. And affirms and vindicates them, and at the same time, what they were, what they were, um, what they were shamed and mocked in, I will now affirm for my glory in that day, and I will affirm what they have done, and then I, and then I will affirm and and expose those who do not know me. If you could get to heaven by works, those people would have made it. Did we not do these things in your name? And he'll say, I never knew you. Oh, you had a religious work life, but it wasn't for me. The Savior. It was for yourself as thinking you could save yourself by those deeds. And they never do it. So today, I'm going to close in prayer. This is a day you're going to encounter. It's appointed unto men once to die and then the judgment. You will be there, all of us. The number one question are you in the books or are you in the book? Are you in the books? Then in that day will be the vindication of God's glory and the judgment and the consignment and assignment Of eternal condemnation. With the degrees of punishment according to the light that you had. In that day, if you're in the book of life. There will be the stewardship judgment that takes place. And you will be brought into the glory and majesty of your Savior. Who has prepared a place for you. That you might enjoy him and we might enjoy one another. In the perfections of eternity. And don't you love those glorious perfections that are described for us in the Word of God. There will be no more mourning, no more temptations, no more sin, no more consequences, no more sickness, no more death, no more dying, but the Lamb forever with His people. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the moments we could be in your word tonight. Thank you, Father, for unfolding for us in the scripture these glorious truths. Now, Father, clearly there is room for your people to have uh, differing convictions or differing insights or be wrestling through trying to get clarity. But the things that we can know we have affirmed here that Jesus is coming. Then comes a judgment seat. And everyone will be there. Those who are in the books will be judged according to their deeds, and there is none that can be saved. Those who are in the book of life will have a stewardship judgment. But, Father, our condemnation has already been removed through Jesus. We're in the Lamb's book of life eternal. So, Father, until that day comes, help us as your people be found faithful. Help us to go to others so that they might be written in the Lamb's book of life. And then help us to serve you, certainly never profitably and certainly never perfectly, but intentionally and purposefully so in that day we will be found faithful. Well done, good and faithful servant. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.
0: You have been listening to a message by Harry Reeder, Senior Pastor of Briarwood Presbyterian Church in Birmingham, Alabama. For more information on the resources available through Briarwood Presbyterian Church, or for more information on the teaching ministry of Pastor Reeder, visit us at briarwood.org or call 205 776 5200.